Welcome to Actions Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. One important aspect of everybody's lives or most people's lives is work culture, organizational culture, the culture that we all spend a good part of our days in. And of course, these things are changing. The great resignation and assertion of what a lot of people have been feeling for years, what they really want out of their work culture, which is an organization that benefits them, values them, and still pretty early into this whole transformation. So we're going to take a little while before we see how this entire thing turns out. However, there are a lot of interesting things going on in this field, hopefully leading us toward a better and more productive work culture in the future. My guest today, Todd Wheeler, is the founder and CEO. And by CEO, he refers to chief enthusiasm officer of an organization called Management Insights, which helps high-level personnel, CEOs, etc., set the tone for the culture that their organizations are going to be employing. Todd, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. Definitely. Well, first, let's start out with Management Insight is what you do with the organizations that you engage with. Fundamentally, what we like to do, Stephen, is we like to create cultures of community and communication. And we do this by basing things on acknowledgement and appreciation. If an organization does just those two things, they will, in fact, be able to maintain and keep people. People need to be listened to. They need to be heard. They need to be appreciated. Oftentimes, I've gone into companies where they've got an open door policy. They've got suggestion boxes throughout. Nobody ever reads the suggestions or does anything about them if they have read them. That is not an open culture. I have been working in and around culture for about 30 years now. And it comes from a space of trying to understand why things don't work in organizations. The famous consultant whose name is escaping me, says that culture will eat strategy anytime. If you don't have the right people to execute with the right attitude, it doesn't matter. Peter Drucker is who I was thinking of. Peter Drucker is the founder of organizational and management consulting. The whole idea behind it is you've got to have a lot of these things working in alignment. Culture to me is the foundation. I look at what I call the non-financial aspects of corporate performance, strategy, structure, leadership style, all based on where the organization is in their stage of development. So with the culture piece added to that as a foundation, that is really what's going on. I've always said that the soft skills are the hardest skills. My tagline for my organization is it's simple, but it's not easy. If you have to hack your way through a jungle and you have a guide who knows where you're going and where the crevasses are and where the rivers are, and what you're going to need to get to the other side, it's a lot easier than just hacking your way through the jungle. Many organizations start out without a clue about how to do what they need to do. You start out with a discovery. So I've got this great idea. My generation and generations before and after, what we were always told was put a plan together, put a plan together, put a plan together. My belief is that is 100% wrong. If you come up with an idea and put a plan together, you are missing two key steps that have to be done with guidance and with intention. The first step is discovery. Got an idea. What do we need to make this happen? So that's the what. What do we need to do? What are the elements? Yeah, we need finance. Yeah, we need marketing. Yeah, we need operations. Those are the big three, by the way, and everything else are derivatives of those. 
Everything else can come under that. Of those things, who are the people we're going to need? How are we going to get it done? And then what's our time frame? The second step is once you've got all of these things, and this can fill a wall with sticky notes, is prioritization. What are the most important things we need to be doing now? So prioritization has a time component, has a manpower component, it has a finance component, it has a human component. All of these things need to be thought about and talked about for you to assure the success of an organization. Now that you know what you're going to do and the priorities in which they are being dealt, and there are historic things that show what should be done first. I've got a whole theories about that. But each individual organization is different. If it's you starting a company by yourself, there are steps that you need to take. If it's you starting a company and the first thing you want to do is build a team, there are steps that you can take. What are the roles and responsibilities? How do we want these people to come across? Who are the people? And I don't mean who are them, Steve and Jay, that I need for this job. It's what is the, are the roles and responsibilities that these people will need to fulfill? So now that you have prioritization, which is a challenge, and I find it to be, after working with baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, and Gen Y, all of these generational aspects of people and human nature, I'm a human nature guy, I'm a culture guy, but strategy and structure are also key. Once you understand what those things are, you can then, in fact, move forward. Once you've got the prioritization and once you've got this figured out, now, And only now can you focus. Focus is the third step. What happens is people say, I'm so busy, my plate's so full, blah, blah, blah. Well, one thing I do is I provide bigger plates, first of all, so things aren't so full. But now that you've understood what you're trying to do, what the priority is, now and only now can you focus. Because if you're focusing on the wrong things, you don't get where you want to go. We're making great time. So don't tell us we're going in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about when you were talking about that. And so do you typically engage organizations at this seed stage when people are beginning with their ideas, or you often find yourself coming into organizations that have already, say, made good time, but driven in the wrong direction? Or they could be making great time and going in the right direction. And they just want to understand what the key elements are so they know what to be focusing on and how to do it. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of areas of focus that you can look at. Based on your question, I've worked with both. I've worked with startups. I've worked with early stage companies. I've worked with growth phase companies. Five years ago, I was called out to Zappos. Zappos has been renowned as the leading customer service company in the world. And their customer service ethos is very simple. Their customer service ethos is based on the most simple of things. We'll take anything back. That's their customer service. Very simple. Not easy, but very simple. And they called me in because they wanted to redo their internal customer service platform. They wanted to know how to take care of their people better and build their culture stronger so they could perform more effectively. I went out there and worked with them. I was only out there on site for a few days, but we redid everything. I had a company called Concierge Colorado and Concierge Resource, and we provided on-site and virtual concierge programs to hospitals, high-rise office buildings, gated communities, large organizations. And what we did is we offered our program as a retention, recruitment, 
productivity enhancement tool. Because what we found is that people spend anywhere from 20 to 35% of their at-work time on non-work-related activities that could be handled by somebody else. So what we would say was we do what you don't want to do, what you don't have time to do, or what you don't know how to do. And then you tell me a half a dozen of those things, and I can show you where we can save time and your employees or the employee themselves wouldn't need to leave or focus or go online or drive somewhere or take care of things to do that. So now you've got discovery, overall concept. Think about what you're doing. People just rush into jobs. They rush into building businesses. The numbers haven't changed since the SBA started doing the research. Since about the 60s, they have found that 60% of all businesses fail in the first five years. I had heard some higher numbers than that even. Well, that number hasn't gone down. The reason you have higher numbers than that now is because more businesses are actually starting. So therefore, more businesses are starting, you're going to get more failures. And are you observing any trends? Are people more aware of that now than they were in the past? Because you've been at this for a little while. Is that Are these trends moving in any direction or is it still the same? These are the things that people tend to ignore. I don't think people are any more aware of it at all. Let's take the cannabis space, for instance, which is big in Colorado. They've got an idea. They don't have any idea what it takes to start and run a successful business. None whatsoever. They think, hey, we've got a product that everybody wants. There's a long way from success between we have a product everybody wants and having a business that is successful. I have not seen any increase in the consciousness or awareness of the true things that are needed to start and run an organization. Anyone out there listening who has an idea and you go through the will it fly exercise or anything else and decide, I am actually going to pursue it. What is the very next thing someone should be thinking about? Well, first of all, maintain the pumpedness, maintain the enthusiasm, ratchet it back to keep that enthusiasm in line and not necessarily in check, but then start looking at the key critical component of building a business. Like I said a few minutes ago, there are only three elements to a business, marketing, finance, and operations. I mean, if you say, well, what about distribution operations? What about manufacturing operations? What about finance? Finance. What about fundraising? Are we a VC target? Are we looking at friends and family? Are we looking at angel investors? How do we do it? Are we going to be funded? Are we going to try to do this bootstrap? There's so many things in the discovery phase that you need to prioritize. The reason of doing discovery is to prioritize. The reason to prioritize is to go into the thinking phase, which is prioritization and focus. You also talk about some of the things you're observing with work culture and trying to set up the right culture. Is this something that people need to be thinking about, say, right at the seed stage? Or is this something that organically develops that oftentimes you need to come in and make a transformation or a reassessment as you start hiring people and growth? It doesn't organically develop. (laughs) It develops poorly. You have to have some kind of idea of what you want. I break culture down into 12 specific types. I'm not going to name them all, but entrepreneurial, sales, traditional, humanistic, political. There's a lot of things that work and a lot of things that don't. You need to understand it. I have heard so many people say, I want my company to feel like a family. I say, absolutely not. (laughs) And why is that? How many families have you ever been familiar with in your life that aren't dysfunctional? Name one. 
Yeah. I mean, there's definitely people that come to mind, but also from an outsider perspective, you don't know the dysfunction of a family. And if you're not part of it, you don't even see it. So if you are part of a company, are you part of the ability to see what's going on in the family? If you're part of a company, you should be. But I honestly feel like there are some companies with certain hierarchies and bosses that feel like they're protecting their employees from things that those employees end up not even seeing what's going on at the higher levels of the organization. A less than open book policy, helicopter executives, helicopter moms, you know, yes, absolutely. So culture needs to be understood. What do we want to do? How do we want to do it? How do we want to do it? Has How do we want our people to come across? How do we want them to feel when they work here? How do we want them to behave when they're here? How do we want them to represent our company? One of the things that I create is what I call a service excellence manifesto or a service excellence commitment. And what that is, is the non-negotiable things that you must do to be a part of this organization, to be a part of this family, to be a part of this in a way that helps and allows you to move yourself forward and gather the right people on your ship, if you will, who are going to be rowing all in the same direction, pulling in the same direction, shared mission, shared vision, shared values. And those are the things that you do actually in the opposite order. You need to establish your values first. What's important? What are the key non-negotiables? Then we determine what our long-term vision The vision to me is to win the war. The mission is to win the battles. So the mission is the battle. You can have multiple missions as an organization grows, but the vision will change over time. But at first, probably not going to change if you've got a real vision. Mm. These considerations for cultures, I feel, is something that has been historically neglected or historically not thought about. Do you see any tide turning on that? Do you see more organizations, especially with the great resignation and having struggled, like we're struggling to keep people having to say, rethink and say, okay, we need to say, this is what our vision, this is what our organizational culture is going to be, or your manifesto, this is what you need to be to be on that ship. And you're a part of it. Let's take that question in a couple of parts. I have seen an incredible shift in cultural appreciation and the importance of it. I was laughed out of boardrooms in the 90s bringing up the importance of culture and how people feel and how you treat them. Are they acknowledged? Are they appreciated? Those are the two big things. Acknowledgement or appreciation are absolutely huge. And again, there are myriad of things underneath each of those. First of all, when you say acknowledgement, appreciation, how does somebody like to be acknowledged? Are they the guy that wants the trophy in the front of the room at the big awards ceremony? Are they the guy or the gal that they want the CEO to come up and put their arm around and quietly go, great job. That was amazing. How are they appreciated? The second or third thing in in the strategic manifestos was ask, 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 ask your people. They will tell you. There has been an extraordinary shift, extraordinary shift in the value of culture. Has it really changed much? I don't think so as is evidenced by the great resignation. Hey, I can work from home. I want to work from home. I need to have the flexibility and the understanding that I can do this. Well, then you better find a company that acknowledges and appreciates that and puts it into action. Otherwise, it's just self-flagellation. You're not going to get anywhere. So people that want that acknowledgement and appreciation, that is where this idea that some people will say, I want flexible work hours, or I want 
to not be micromanaged. I want unlimited PTO or people not paying attention to every hour. Or the opposite. I need to work with a team where I can come in and sit with six people every single day for two hours. You got to realize it's both sides. One of the things that happened at Zappos a couple years ago, Zappos adopted a management system called Holacracy. It's a totally flat organization, even flatter than it was. When they adopted that, they lost between 20 and 24% of their employees. Huge. Now, that's not unusual. The reason is twofold. Some people need bosses. Some people need to have bosses. So when you eliminate that type of hierarchy, the ones who need bosses don't have them anymore. And the ones who want to be a boss aren't a boss anymore. Yeah, because holacracy means no bosses, no subordinates. Everything is just completely flat. Is that correct? Right. You can have a new customer service guy sitting at an executive roundtable meeting. So that makes sense. And so what you're saying is that although there are some aspects of work culture that are toxic in any situation, there is no one right way. Are you saying that more needs more of this radical honesty that you talk about or this transparency where people know what the work culture is and they know what they're getting into and find the one that meets those needs that you have? Can influence it and be a part of it, acknowledged and appreciated. My other question about acknowledgement and appreciation is, for all those solopreneurs out there or people on whatever part of their quest is, is that something that also implies internally? Do we need to acknowledge and appreciate ourselves? 100%. That's the shortest answer I'm going to give you. (laughs) Some questions are just like that with a short answer. And so how long have you been at the organizational transformation game? I know uh, how long have you had management insights? And I know you've had some other experiences before that, but it seems like you've had a good number of experiences where you can observe a lot of these trends that are going on. Well, I've always been in and around service businesses. I started Management Insight formally in about 1996. I have always had an interest in organizations. I was the kid in high school who had an extraordinarily good relationship with my mom, single mom. We were a team. I realized at a very young age that this was a woman who was smarter than me, had a lot more knowledge than me, was much more experienced than I was. Oh, and also happened to love me. Love is a very big deal. I trusted her completely. If she told me to do something, I had two arguments with my mom growing up. Two in my whole life. Wow. That is insanely low for anyone that remembers their childhood. And guess whose fault they both were? I'll give you a hint. They weren't hers. Yeah. So she, very smart, upper middle class, single, divorced Jewish mom in the 60s, which was unheard of. You know, you didn't get divorced. I was the kid in high school that my friend's parents, once they would see me and hang around, see me with their kids and have conversations with me, they would ask me, how and what can I do or how can I have a better relationship with my kids? How can we have a relationship that would approach the kind of relationship you have with your mom? When I was first asked this question, starting at about 16 or 17, I didn't have a clue. I had no idea. (laughs) You know, what do they say? A fish in the water who is thirsty needs serious professional help. I mean, I had no idea. I didn't know how good I had it. And we grew up one step above food stamps. Like I said, single mom, my mom became legally blind. In the late 60s, we had a tough upbringing. I went back and I talked to my mom about it. 
interestingly enough, that was the answer. So I went back to my friends. How do you have such a good relationship? And I would say, have you ever just had a conversation with your kids about stuff, life, what they're interested in, not making them better, driving them forward, doing what's better for them? Just if you you said, well, no, because I'm I'm the mom or I'm the dad, then I would go, aha, (laughs) maybe that's it. I'm just remembering what it was like being a teenager myself and hearing about other teenagers. And oftentimes you're exploring the world and you're just wanting to like talk about it and explore it and be like, I wonder why people act this way in this situation, or I wonder why bullies are bullies or anything like that. Well, I have the answer for that, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bullies are bullies for one reason, insecurity, period. It's not power. It's not force. It's insecurity. The same thing in dominating relationship. I've done a lot of relationship work with, not professionally, but I've fixed a lot of relationships and fixing them to mean is ending them or helping them move forward. One of the two, right? You've got to take into effect that if you've got somebody who's very controlling in a relationship, they're typically not doing it from a position of power. They're doing it from a position of insecurity. That's interesting. And so is there a way to cure that? Because I had read maybe six, seven years ago that the top predictors of people's employee engagement satisfaction at work is what's the relationship I have with my supervisor and do I have a best friend at work? And so it ends up being like, what are my relationships with the people around me? So is there a way to fix those? So if someone's insecure and they're acting out on insecurity and maybe they're taking it out on either coworkers or their subordinates, if you want to talk about it in a non-holacracy sense... Is there a way to fix that problem before, say, more employees leave because they're just not appreciating that behavior? I'm going to answer that by referring you back to a question you asked before. And that is, when do you establish the culture of an organization? After it's too late? After there's problems? After you've tried to wing it and it doesn't work? And I would recommend this to any individual and any organization. You need to write down and understand, clarify the absolute non-negotiable things that you want in a company and you don't want in a company. And you also need to understand who you are, the absolute non-negotiable things about you. When do you compromise yourself? When do you sabotage yourself? When do you get in your own way? That takes some chutzpah and some guts to do that. Well, it feels like everything that applies to the relationships we have with one another also applies to the relationship we have with ourselves. I'm not going to tolerate this for myself. I got too drunk last night and woke up in a gutter or something, and I'm just not going to tolerate that for myself anymore. <laughs> well, I hope not. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I guess what I'm wondering is, if someone's already in that position where they've already allowed this to happen, they're non-negotiables, whether it's with yourself or whether it's with others in the organization, is there something people can do to turn it around or to reestablish that? Like, here's my list. Here's what I want. Here's what I'm not willing to accept. This is an interview protocol and not a coaching protocol. I'm going to give you some answers. You want to let it rain. R-A-I-N. R is recognized. First of all, you have to recognize what is going on. Maybe put a real name on it. Am I feeling angry? Am I feeling upset? Am I feeling overlooked? Am I feeling ignored? That's the R. The A is allowed. Now that you've recognized it and actually put a name to it, so you've got a little bit of understanding, 
allow it to happen. Allow it to wash over you a little. These are non-Buddhist, but these are meditative steps. So you can work with these emotions and how these emotions work. So recognize, acknowledge. The I is then investigate. Now that it's acknowledged and it's not gripping you by the throat anymore, you can now investigate it. So you can start to say, okay, how is this affecting me? Why is this affecting me? Where is this coming from? And then N is nurture. Now that you've recognized it, now that you've allowed it to kind of wash over you, now that you've investigated it, nurture it. And nurturing it could mean you pull it up by the roots and you get rid of it and you move on to something else. Or you think about it more. You are actually working it. It's a process. One of the things I've taken probably 20 years of sales courses, because it's all about communication. To be able to understand the key things in a sales situation, it's all about asking questions. And before we started live today, what did I do with you? I ask questions. What's going on? What's happening with you? That's who I am because I'm legitimately interested in understanding who you are and hearing your voice. Well, it's interesting that you talk about that with communications because a lot of listeners out there will have the same experience as I do where we still have people who go into sales mode on things and they go right into their pitch. Why do you think that's still so prevalent these days, even though there's so much evidence that it requires a different approach? There's this magic little thing in our psyche. It's called ego. So magical. So people want to be more important, be perceived as more knowledgeable, be perceived as having all the answers. There's nothing wrong with ego unless there is something wrong with ego. <laughs> <laughs> That's a simple way of putting it. <laughs> we used to say, if it ain't broke, break it, right? I mean, so I mean, <laughs> it has a lot to do with the typical appraisal of what a salesperson is. I got to come in and show you the answer and show you the solution and show you the this and that. And blah, 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 blah. I'll tell you a story about that. The headline of the story is that people don't argue with their own list. So when I had my concierge company... And we were small. We were doing a couple million bucks a year. And, you know, it was a nice 10 people. I loved it. It was great. It was exactly what I wanted. But what happened is I would go in and people would say, yeah, what do you do? Who do you know? And I could get in to see anybody. That wasn't a problem. But I'd say, we do this and we do this and we do this and we do this. It turns out that the biggest things people needed us for. But if I were to say that to you, you would say, well, I have somebody who does that. I have somebody who does that. I have somebody who does that. My wife takes care of that. My secretary takes care of that. And my great response that I learned about that was, and they like it. <laughs> <laughs> and I would have CEOs turn bright red and say, no, they don't like it. And it's causing me all kinds of problems. Tell me about those problems. Rather than do that, what I would say to people was, we do, like I said, what you don't want to do. You don't know how to do. You don't have time to do. Tell me some of the things in your life that fall into those three categories, which is basically everything, you know, yeah. <laughs> and they would tell me this and they would tell me that they would say, I need this. And they would tell me that, blah, 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 blah. So when I went in and I gave them my list, they have a place to argue. But when I went in and I asked them about their list, one of the biggest questions that I will ask you is what's important to you? So speaking of that, I like to give my listeners a chance to get a hold of any of my guests. And so if anyone is interested in 
having a conversation with you, what would be the best way anyone listening could get a hold of you? Well, I'm a telephone guy and I would rather do it via telephone. I'm, I'm a baby boomer. I'm a little older school. I'm in Colorado. So it's 303-883-8001. My email address is Todd at Management Insights, spelled I-N-S-I-G-H-T, dot C-O, like Colorado. My word is my bond. If you call and you leave me a message or if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. I mean, you noticed before our meeting today, I didn't have the address for some reason, the, the credentials. I called you up and I said, buddy, <laughs> where, where are we? You know? And that's because you, that first email you sent, I didn't see. And that's, you know, it's my fault because I've got filters and junk and spam and bleh. Yeah, sometimes it's tough. I also wanted to ask you a couple other questions about communication, given how long you've been at this. And since the 90s, the time when you said when you were laughed out of these boardrooms for saying that we should be worried about whether people feel acknowledged and appreciated, we've had an explosion of new forms of communication pop up. I mean, there was already email by then, but we're talking about text messages the Slack, the Zoom that we're on right now, as well as social media and everything. What do you think has that done for our communications? Is there anything that's like improving or getting worse or becoming different about how we communicate with one can another? I, can I just say yes? <laughs> <laughs> Here's the issue. I've actually spoken on this and I've had this conversation with friends and I've also spoken on this completely. I don't think this is a connection device. What texting has done is, first of all, it's destroying our language. It's destroying so many languages with all the abbreviations. We're forgetting about punctuation. I mean, come on. Punctuation is critical. I think that the opportunity to have enhanced the levels of communication is there. I mean, there was a song years ago about kids. What's the matter with kids today? Why can't they be like we were perfect in every way? I grew up and all my telephones had tails. They were all wired to a wall. They had a wire coming at them. Yeah, they're attached to the wall. When I moved to Colorado, which was in the mid-70s, I was on a party line. Do you even know what a party line is? I just assume that's that like that party limo bus that takes everyone to the concerts at Red Rocks. No, it's one phone number, four or five different households on one phone number. Oh it was wow. A party line. Were there parties around it? Did people actually like dance and play music? No, not or? that kind of party. <laughs> but I mean, there was multiple parties on one phone number because they didn't have the technology back then. So you'd pick up your phone in your house and your neighbors would be on a phone call. Wow. Yeah. Party line. Yeah. You never even heard of that, have you? That's crazy because like we've all seen movies where people will like some teenagers are call. I lived at the end of a street way up in the mountains in the middle of nowhere. And we had a landline, but so did our four neighbors on our landline. <laughs> One of the things we take for granted right now is that our communication is available at any minute of any day. You can reach everyone you want to reach via six different possible methods. And six is probably even underestimating it. You could Slack, email, text, whatever. And it's weird how we have become more disconnected. More people report loneliness and being disconnected than they did before all that, what does it mean to not have that availability? Because we only here in Colorado today know it from when we go backpacking. Look at the level of depression. Look at the level of isolation. Look at the levels of pharmaceuticals that people are ingesting because of that. The biggest thing missing from our 
society today. And society runs from the president of the United States to somebody cleaning your toilet, that the thing that's missing the most is community. Hmm. When the Indian tribes were around for 10,000 years before the white man came along, there were very few people in that tribe who didn't feel they were part of a tribe. I know a lot of people. I have a lot of friends, people that we know in common, who are feeling very, very alone, surrounded by people. They are very alone. A lot of times people don't want to admit that they need help. A lot of times they don't want to step up and say, I don't want to do this or I want to do this. Again, if you can build a culture and a community and communication, I think a culture of community is even more important than what I've always called a culture of communication. Culture of communication and community is structured by acknowledgement and appreciation. See, I always learn as I talk and as I talk with people like you who have these great questions, because that's how I learn. I don't learn by coming up with the answers. I learn by hearing the questions. Well, that reminds me of this image we all have of like this idea that all these great ideas come from some guy sitting alone on a park bench and that light bulb suddenly pops in when their head like, oh my God, this, oh my God, Newton, gravity. Oh, I never realized this before. Even if they do come in that sense, are input by a lot of the conversations and discussions that we have with each other. And the last question I want to ask you today is, as far as our culture of communication, our community, whether we're talking about within our organizations, within our work or entrepreneurial pursuits, or just within our personal networks, what do you think is the number one thing people can do to become better communicators amongst the people around them and feel more and make others feel less like they're alone. Identify who you are, be more of a human being and less of a human doing. B, understand who you are. You are does not have any right to control anybody else. People say we should be less judgmental. We have to be judgmental every minute of every day. <laughs> I have to know where the countertop is. I have to know where the walls are. I'm going to walk into them. I mean, it sounds silly, but to understand where and why you're coming from will help you become more being. You will be much more able to be who you are. Take things in. I was reading something yesterday about a coach, and this coach has got the most incredible ability to, regardless of background, become one with and a part of an insightful and intuitive to his client pretty much everyone had some part in creating the space where we are, even if it is with little decisions like, oh, should I call up my friend or should I just scroll on the phone, the devices that you were referring to earlier? Not doing something is a, can be a pretty bad decision sometimes. And also not doing something can be the best decision you could make sometimes. As long as we're conscious of it. There's an old expression that it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Yeah, I forgot who said that. <laughs> I did. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. Well, hopefully we all can improve our acknowledging, appreciating, and listening. Todd, I would like to thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes and sharing your insight on communication, community, as well as building better organizations. And hopefully everyone out there listening 
You're thinking about your community. You're thinking about your communication patterns, how to be as opposed to do around others, as well as what you want to do, your vision for your ideas, because I'm sure so many of you out there have wonderful ideas that the world would benefit from if you were to bring them into fruition and bring in all these new organizations and hopefully with better culture than the one we had so many years back that used to laugh Todd out of the boardroom just for saying we need to treat our employees with respect and other things like that. Thank you for listening. And I would like to encourage you to continue listening to Actions Antidotes. We'll have some more fantastic conversations with people who have some fantastic insights into what we all need to do to create the life that we all really want. It was my pleasure, Stephen. And if there are other things that we can discuss, let's continue along those lines. And I, I, I welcome the opportunity to come back and have a whole other barrage of questions. Well, thank you very much. I always love it when people appreciate these interviews. My pleasure, man. 